letter to the Christians in Rome. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Two, all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for his word to us. Thank you so much, Anthony. Well, keep that passage open in front of you. Um, let me introduce myself. If you don't know me, my name's Steve. I'm the pastor of the church here. And like Moss said, we are beginning, Just that was just to get your attention, we're beginning a, a series in the book of Romans. Let me pray for us as we look at God's word. Let me pray. Uh, Father God, we thank you this morning that we open these Bibles with expectant hearts, knowing that your spirit, he who inspired these words, he is now alive and at work in our hearts, helping us to understand them and also to live by them. And so we pray that that might be our experience together this morning. In the midst of our own weakness, we pray that we might experience your strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're perhaps getting used to the idea that our lives are shaped by events that happen over which we have very little control. Events which on their own are quite small events which make big changes to our lives. You know, the purchase of a bat from a food market in Wuhan, which means that for two years you don't really go to school or work normally. Or what about the desire of uh, one man to restore the glory of his nation, which means that you and I are going to be cold in our homes this winter. Or the peaceful passing of an elderly lady in rural Scotland which brings to an end the Elizabethan era and shakes the world and gives you and I a bank holiday tomorrow. They're all historical events, aren't they, over which we have no control, all of which massively affect us. And the point being really that all of us are passengers of history. It's a history that we're not writing ourselves, we're not directing. You know, however much we uh, might pretend that our life is about the, the, the goals that we carve out for ourselves, how much we obsess about questions of what we would like to do in life, still the reality is that in large part at least we are carried along by events over which we have very little influence or control. We see that over and over again. Now if that's true in a small way about bats in Wuhan or deaths in Scotland, then our passage this morning is going to teach us that there are two events in history, events which eclipse those events in their significance because they shape not only what you're going to do tomorrow on a free day bank holiday, or whether you have to go to school for the next few months, they, instead they shape everything eternally for all of us. 
two events in history that shape everything eternally for all of us. So let me show you that from these opening verses. Look down at the passage with me and we'll work our way through it. Verse 1, Paul tells us that he is a servant, an apostle, and is set apart for or in the gospel. This is not that the gospel needs Paul's help. It's not that Paul comes along first and he's able to help this gospel message along its way. It's the other way around. The gospel comes first and makes Paul a servant and apostle and sets him apart. The gospel changes Paul, not the other way around. And what is the gospel? Well, literally the word means big news or good news. And we're told that it is good news of God. In other words, this is divine news from the author of history himself. And then comes Paul's summary of it, which focuses on two historical events. Events which you look at verse 2 are promised beforehand by the prophets in the pure or holy Old Testament scriptures. Events which, verse 3, are concerning the divine, eternal Son of God. And then they come, these two events, in two parallel statements. One, descended from David according to the flesh. And two, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection. There you have it. Good news from God about the eternal son, born in flesh in the line of David and resurrected, risen from the dead. Now let's just take a look at those two events in more detail as they're explained to us by Paul. Firstly, the eternal son born in human flesh. This is the first point on the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. There is a point in history, says Paul, where the eternal Son of God, the second member of the divine trinity, in one essence with the Father and the Spirit, that Son is born, says Paul, literally becomes flesh in the line of David or from David. So that all those promises to David, all those pictures of kings and kingdoms, saviors and leaders, all of those are, if you like, laser beamed in their focus onto a stable outside of Bethlehem when the eternal son takes on human flesh and is born as a baby. Now, when you read the accounts of the incarnation in the New Testament, they don't seem as, at the time to be as significant as that, do they? I mean, the person who allowed Mary and Joseph to stay in his stable presumably didn't understand the significance of what was taking place. Surely if he did, at the very least, he would have given up his own bed, right? Oh, yes, I understand that you are the eternal son. You're giving birth in flesh to the eternal son didn't understand that, did he? Really, though, what was happening in that moment, in that stable, God, the one who made you, the one to whom you belong, the writer of history, the driver of the story to which we're all passengers, in that moment begins to experience life through our eyes. It's really hard, I think, to communicate the significance of what's being said here because we're all so familiar with it. But just try and grasp this if you can. Paul's claim is that the big news, the gospel of God, the news that you must hear, is that as a point in history which is as real as your own birthday, when God became man. In other words, the gospel, the big news promised in the Old Testament, the news that Paul wants to outline to the church in Rome, starts in history not so much with the exaltation of God, but with his humiliation. And think about that. Before we say anything else about what the gospel message is, even if we, before we start talking about sin and forgiveness, which we must talk about, 
What you need to know before all of that is that there is a point in history, a time that you can put on a calendar, a real place and a real moment where the eternal, self-existent creator of everything gasped for breath as a baby, born in the line of David, carrying in his body the promises of God, the infinite creator now in a finite body, a person that we can know that we can understand, that we can relate to, a humble baby born in poverty. I, I wonder this morning if some of you are sitting here and you're, you're battling with doubt, wondering really if the, all this talk of the gospel can be true. You know, maybe you're a teenager and it's, it's getting tough at school because people around you think you're ridiculous for going to church or calling yourself a Christian. You know, can I really believe in eternal life, the glories of heaven, a meaning and a purpose? You know, people around us think we're crazy, don't we? It's a load of nonsense. How can you say that's true? How can I stand here? How can you sit there with any confidence and say, oh, yes, I know God. I know he's real. I know what he's like. What gives us the right to make that kind of statement? Well, Paul says here, Romans 1, you can know that the gospel is true, not primarily because you feel it, not even because you've been brought up to hear about it, not because we've removed any capacity for critical thinking. Now, you can know the gospel is true first and foremost. Why? Because it happened. It happened. It happened in history when God came in flesh, God humbled in human flesh, accommodating himself to someone that we could see and touch and know. The invisible became visible so that God isn't someone that we imagine or dream of. He's not someone that we have to invent to fill up the gaps in our knowledge. No, God is the one who visited us, arrived in flesh at a date and time you can mark. Our doubts thrive on the lie that the gospel is first just a feeling, when really the gospel is at first events. You know, in one sense, it's not quite the same, but in one sense, we know God in the same way that we know the queen. We know the queen. How do we know the queen? Because she was real. Yeah. She had a birthday. No one doubts that. It's the same with God. We know the eternal, pre-existent God, the one who created all things. How? Because he had a birthday in flesh. And more of that in a moment. But jump with me to the second historical event. The eternal son, risen from the dead. I hope as you look down at verse 4, do look down at verse 4, you can see how Paul has written it to parallel verse 3. In this next statement, Paul says that the eternal son was born not only in flesh, but was also declared to be the son of God in power. Now, at first glance, it might seem that Paul here is referring to Jesus' divine nature to hold it alongside his human nature complement what he said in verse 3. Now, of course, that is true and right, isn't it? But I think the point is more specific than that. In verse 3, the words concerning his son, as he introduces this, concerning his son, that there is a reference to the eternal divine son, the second person of the Trinity. So in a way, by the time you get to verse 4, the divinity of the son has already been declared before that. So the contrast here is not so much between his humanity and his divinity as it is between his humiliation in the flesh and his exaltation in the flesh through the resurrection so notice he's been declared to be the son of god notice in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead in other words paul says listen 
there is another historical event, not just the incarnation, not just Jesus being born in flesh. There is another historical event. Not only was God made man, but also that very man smashed through death. And with it, by implication, sin too, because as we'll find out in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Because a time and a place, the God-man conquered all defeating in his Holy Spirit-empowered physical resurrection the very forces arrayed against humanity. On Friday morning last week, the day after the Queen died, I was reading my Bible just in my devotions, and I was reading from 1 Peter, and uh, Peter quotes the book of Isaiah, and he says, All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. You know, I read that and I thought, you know what, Peter, you're absolutely right, aren't you? All these great tributes and all the amazing service of the Queen, for all the ways that she did an outstanding job and was uniquely sacrificial still, age 96, defeated. Defeated. Conquered by death. Glory faded. And tomorrow her coffin will be laid alongside that of her husband and her father in the vault below the chapel. And that's just it, isn't it? Humanity's great, undefeatable enemy. The wages of sin that we all face coming to us all, death. But God's big news is that death has been defeated, not in theory, but in history. That in the course of humanity, there is an empty grave. Because the Son of Man, the God-Man, Christ Jesus, according to the Spirit of Holiness, rose from the dead. And so he alone has the unfading glory. He is the Son of God in power. That the eternally divine Son who was humbled in the flesh is now exalted in the flesh as he rises again. The one who gave up the glories of heaven to be born as a man, receiving the authority of heaven as a death-defeating saviour. Notice what he says, the eternal Son in that moment becomes Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our Lord. Again, just pause with me here for a moment and just let that sink in. Tell your doubting heart this great truth this morning. There's a, there's a point in history, okay? There's a, there's a time and a place where death and sin was defeated in the flesh by the God-man Christ Jesus. Listen, there is a day, an actual day, when death died, when sin was defeated, when Christ rose, not in theory, not in philosophy, not even in a grand theological idea, but in time and space and history. We started this morning with this idea that our lives are shaped in all sorts of different ways by events in history over which we have no control. I want to just show you now as we finish how these two great events, the incarnation of Christ and his resurrection, his exaltation, are really the events that do shape our lives or should shape our lives. So notice as we finish two other parallels in the passage. As you look down, hopefully you can see that those statements about the Son of God are surrounded by the implications for both Paul and the Roman church. In verse 1, he calls this uh, gospel news centered on those events in history, calls Paul, we're told. He is called to be an apostle. He is set apart for the gospel. A servant who, according to verse 5, is then sent among the nations to bring about the obedience of faith, as he calls it. Literally, the faith which is itself obedience. More of that in a moment. 
But this calling of Paul then is paralleled in verse 6 with another calling. This big news that calls Paul in verse 1 now also includes the Roman church and calls them to belong to Christ in the same way. In other words, this big news of Christ in the flesh, humbled, resurrected in the flesh, exalted, shouts out across history to them, to us, to call us to the obedience which is faith, that we might belong to him by faith. Faith, not in ideas or wishful hopes, but in events. Faith grounded in events. Verse 7 of our passage then is the introduction line, isn't it, to the rest of the letter. This is the dear Roman church part, if you like. But notice there how Paul addresses the church. He repeats this idea of being called. Notice what he says. The church are loved by God. Incredible, isn't it? God's actions in history are springing from God's love for his people. Secondly, then, they are saints. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Literally, called to be holy. It's the same word as Paul has used to describe the scriptures in verse 2. And the spirit in verse 4. Now the Roman church are, because of God's loving call, shouted in these events in history, because they have faith in God, as they hear about those events, they are as pure as his word and his spirit, belonging to Christ as a precious and perfect treasure, loved by their maker. Now those are just some hints at some of the great glories that are to come in the book of Romans as we work through it. But the point suggested is this, that in these great actions in history, God has made sinners into saints so that through God's actions, he is calling ordinary, broken, sinful people like you and me, loving them, calling them to himself and making them, us, holy. This is something he is doing through those events as their implications roll across time and transform me from being a a self-interested rebel who lives with the delusion that he's in control of his life into a holy child of God who writes history himself and includes me in it. Let's try and land some of this for us this morning. You and I live in a world where there are two outstanding events long promised in the Old Testament, carefully explained by the New Testament, which shape everything eternally for all of us. They concern the eternal son of the living God, the creator and writer of history itself. In the first, he's humbled in flesh. He becomes knowable, not distant and disconnected, not a figment of your imagination, God in humility making himself known in the flesh. In the second event, that same God-man is resurrected in power and exalted as king. He smashes through sin and death, those great forces which ruin our lives, both that internal self-destroying desire and the physical decay that we all experience, undone in history by Christ Jesus our Lord. And this morning, those standout events in history are shouting out to us to put our faith and our trust and our confidence and our hope in him children who will belong to him, beloved by him and made holy by him. We live, don't we, in a world which is so easily shaken. I don't know how you feel, but I, you know, we very quickly get to the end of our own control. And things spin. Our lives have been shaped by all imagining 
beyond all imagining by those events in Wuhan, by the quiet passing of an elderly lady. But the big news, the good news, is that those events are eclipsed by Christ's incarnation and resurrection. The author of history has been here, lived, died, and rose again. And those events this morning shout to you and I and call us to put our faith in him that we might be included in them. Just imagine with me how this might work. Tomorrow morning, you switch on the television and you're watching as the Queen's coffin is carried into Westminster Abbey. You're listening to the commentators tell you, you know, amazing, how amazing this woman was, how significant this moment is that we're living through. Talking about what it meant to live in the Elizabethan era, how her actions have shaped our life and how we experience it now. What are you thinking as you watch it? You're thinking, oh yes, this is a significant moment into history and I'm, I'm glad to be watching it. But you know what? There is a greater, more significant event in history which has shaped my life in a more significant and greater way than even this. Because there is an empty tomb in history where the God-man Christ Jesus rose in Holy Spirit power. And that event doesn't just mark our life in some kind of oblique way. Instead, it shouts to us to put our faith in him, to belong to him in the obedience of faith, that our sin and our death might be defeated by his resurrection. Listen this morning. Answer the call in obedience and faith. Let's pray together. Just take a moment of quiet. You can think and ponder on some of the things that we've considered, and then I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, how we thank you so much that our faith rests not on our feelings, not on just wishful thinking or ideas that we've had, but that our faith rests on what you have done in history, in the person of your son, born in flesh, risen from the dead. Help us, we pray this morning, to listen to those events as they call across history to us for this obedience of faith, faith which is itself obedience, that we might listen to your call, belong to you, be loved by you, be made holy by you. We pray and ask as we look at this book of Romans together over these coming weeks and months, please we ask that we might go beyond just understanding it to really being transformed by it, that we would live confident Christian lives knowing that actually we live in a world where you are writing history and we are carried along, not by events outside of at your control, but events which you are dictating, that we might live lives to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.